Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Managing Health and Safety Risk in a Post-COVID-19 World. I want to let you know that you're in the right place. We're just going to be getting our presentation underway in a little under one minute. So again, we welcome you and uh, invite you to get settled in. We'll be starting in just about a minute. Hello to all of you joining. I want to let you know you're in the right place for managing health and safety risk in a post-COVID-19 world. Going to be getting going in about 30 seconds, just letting folks get, in, uh, get settled in. Okay, well again, everyone, uh, we welcome you and say thanks for joining us for today's Safety and Health webcast, Managing Health and Safety Risk in a Post-COVID-19 World, sponsored by Fulcrum. My name is Kevin Drewley. I'm an Associate Editor with Safety and Health Magazine, and I'll be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. We hope you all are safe and well amid the COVID-19 pandemic. We also ask that you please take a moment to honor those who have lost their lives on the job as we commemorate International Workers Memorial Day today. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first I wanna go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication doesn't mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and click the send button. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speakers. At the end of the webcast, you also will be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey that will appear on a separate screen. We will let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. You may also receive a link in a post-event email. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speakers today are Keith Hole, David Janicki, and Jake Freevald. Keith serves as director of TSM UK Consulting Limited. He is a specialist in international accreditation and the implementation of behavioral management techniques in health and safety. He is a member of the Council for the Institution of Occupational Safety and Health, a global safety body, as well as a fellow of IOSH and the International Institute of Risk and Safety Management. David has spent nearly 10 years working in various EHS positions, and in March 2020, created Safety Nights in response to a lack of communities dedicated to health and safety professionals. Since then, Safety Nights has expanded its influence to over 1,800 users. Jake is head of product marketing for Fulcrum and works with the Fulcrum team to modernize the mobile workforce. Jake has spent his career in technical and marketing positions using data to help people run their businesses more effectively. Again, we thank you all for being here today. Uh, we'll be having a panel discussion today with Keith, David, and Jake. So gentlemen, if you're ready, we will go ahead and take it away. Sounds great. Right. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. 
No, <laughs> said sounds great. Thank you. Oh, you bet. Um, so the the first section we're going to address COVID and safety challenges. Um, we all know this pandemic has affected every aspect of safety processes, management, and accountability. So let's talk about how the trajectory of the safety industry may have changed. We'll get it going with, with a polling question. Um, we're gonna be asking, where do you think the safety industry is headed at this phase of the pandemic? So you see the responses there and we'll give you about 30 seconds or so to, to let, you know what, uh, let us know what you think. We definitely need people to vote on this because I've got a big sign in front of me that says hosts and panelists cannot vote. These yeah. are definitely your opinions. So come on, press those buttons now. It'd be fantastic. My vote doesn't count. No, our votes don't count at all, David. I think it's fantastic, though. What have we got online right now? We've got nearly, we've got over 200 people online right now. It's fantastic, isn't it? It's fabulous having that many people interested in the topic. Yeah, for sure. There we go. Majority says some changes are permanent, but we'll be relaxing some aspects of what we do. So about two-thirds of that, yep. And that's probably what I would have guessed. That's probably what I would have submitted as well. So, well, we had we had a little bit over eighty percent of precincts reporting. So, we'll we'll echo Keith's plug as uh, we were are going to have a few more polling questions throughout this discussion today. So, with that, we will get our, our first question going though, and it's to David. David, what new challenges arose with the pandemic? You want me to list all of them? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> how long we got? Um, no, so obviously, you know, I'll, I'll be answering these questions from a, you know, health and safety professional standpoint. Um, you know, you can interpret these questions from like any realm or industry, but um, yeah, I mean, as, as far as like health and safety goes, um, probably the biggest challenge I think, I think the industry faced is like what to actually do when people got sick. Um, and, it, you know, it, it was, it's not something like, you know, if you had an employee get sick, it's not you know, something that we're used to really dealing with. So, um, you know, I think depending on your company and your industry, if you're like a 24 seven operation and, you know, a third or second shift worker gets sick, um, you might have to make some shuffles, you know, in terms of, you know, shift changes, you know, contact tracing, who else on that shift may have gotten sick. Um, and I think, I think that's kind of like a, you know, something that, pretty much every department would have been involved with, you know, from health and safety to like human resources to the operations department um, in terms of like making those changes and figuring out how to like, you know, structure your shifts if, if, if someone got sick. So I would say in terms of like challenges, um, at least from what I've seen, that that was probably the biggest curveball is when people actually got sick and got COVID because, um, you know, no, no one really is like trained to know what to do. Um, you know, especially within like a month of learning of like lockdowns and stuff like that. Um, 
you know, and I think another challenge is, is just making sure the workforce, um, you know, follow the, the state and the CDC guidelines. Um, you know, I think it comes down to how disciplined your, your workforce is, you know, a lot of the work workforce had to go remote. Um, a lot of the workforce didn't have to go remote. So, um, or had to stay non-remote rather. So uh, trying to make sure, you know, your, your, your company or people are following those, those procedures, I think was um, probably challenge number two. So those are, those are my two biggies right there, figuring out what to do when people got sick and, and, and uh, how to manage, you know, social distancing and making sure you're following the, the recommended guidelines. Which of these challenges, Keith, do you, do you feel are here to stay? Well, I, I, I really liked, and um, I've got to say, firstly, thank you for having me here. It's a great platform, and it's, uh, I'm really great honour to be speaking virtually from the uh, other side of the world. But really, looking at that polling result, one of the really interesting things, and thinking about changes being permanent, just think coronavirus is related to flus and colds. You know, companies like Beecham's, companies like... Um, other cold and flu manufacturers at the moment are kicking themselves. They've built a industry out of presenteeism. Three years ago, if you had a cold, if you had a, the flu, you'd have probably taken some medicine, you'd have gone to work. And the real change that we've definitely had within culture around the world, if someone has got a slight cold, a fever, isn't feeling well, you're not got, you haven't got, um, leaders of industry going you'll be all right come in take some hot lemon take you know take that it's no stay home don't come in because of the severity of this so we've seen this seismic change in terms of presenteeism and about people coming into the office to get their job done even when they fell slightly under the weather <laughs> and i think that's the real thing that's probably changed is that people treat people being unwell at a time of work differently than they probably did two, three years ago, because you would have struggled on. Now, if you're unwell, you're told by the company you work for, don't come into work. So there is this real change in the way we're treating people in terms of presenteeism and about how they're, um, how we're actually making sure we keep the rest of the workforce well and we look after their well-being. Jake, uh, this one's for you. How do you minimize the disruption caused by changing safety protocols so they don't interfere with productivity? Thanks, Kevin, and, and thanks for being here. I think um, I think I'd like to start this uh, answer, and it's a it's a critical question for us at Fulcrum. I'd like to start this answer by actually bringing up another couple of polling questions. Uh, the first one is, uh, how were you managing safety pre-pandemic? And the reason I ask that in this context is that we're talking about changes and the kinds of changes that um, uh, that, that COVID-19 has brought upon us. And uh, what we'll be asking right after this is how you're managing safety now. So you start off with some, you know, the, some of the typical ways that people were managing safety. They were tracking their inspections on pen and paper, or if they started the digital journey, frequently their first step into that was by uh, providing, you know, creating spreadsheets and, and making sure that everyone had the same spreadsheet. Uh, some people actually have either custom built applications or potentially prepackaged applications that, that uh, helped them gather safety information. And maybe some of you are using something else. 
So, um, so pre-pandemic, how are you? Uh, how are you managing uh, your safety programs? And I think we've been gone for about thirty seconds. So, if we look at the results of that, uh, mostly spreadsheets wins at about forty percent. So, people have been taking that first step into digital uh, uh, to, to di uh, digital transformation. Uh, a lot of people still using pen and paper, about, about a fifth of us, and uh, with custom applications, almost 30%. So, and I, I don't know what the, something else is, but that's very interesting, and it, it'd be interesting to talk about that. I, I think the important thing for, um, for us to think about with respect to managing changes that took place during COVID is that the, the spreadsheet and paper approach caused a great deal of difficulty because version control could be so uh, difficult. If you're using pen and paper, then you have to uh, create new versions of the documents that you are using to, to move that out. Uh, you have to create new versions of the spreadsheets that you're using in order to make sure everybody's working off the same ones. Uh, you're doing things like email distribution. Manual distribution might not work because people might not want to come into the work center if they don't have to. So, um, so a lot of version control issues came up as a result of uh, managing uh, that uh, in, in, um, uh, in, in with, with pen and paper and spreadsheets. Uh, I don't think we brought up the, how are you managing safety now? I, I, uh, would we, can we raise that as well? So uh, the interesting thing to see here is, has that changed? Has the, the fact that we're being more distant, the fact that we're not showing up to, um, to central locations as much, has that changed what we are, uh, what our approach is for managing safety? And, um, and uh, again, same questions, are you using these, these, uh, these same formats now or have you made a change from COVID? I think that's one of the more uh, intriguing aspects of this question. The variability within these different methods is something that will um, come out, I think, later when we talk about communication. Again, mostly spreadsheets. We've decreased our reliance on pen and paper. It's forced some of us to, to move into that kind of digital realm a little bit more. But uh, how we use uh, digital information to communicate is going to become a really critical part of our uh, the next section of our discussion. Um, one of the key things that we do at Fulcrum is make sure that you have the rigor that you need that you would get from a paper checklist or a spreadsheet that contains the kind of information that you need uh, because it's an app on your phone that you can use or, or tablet that you can use to get exactly the right answers that you're looking for, but it's being designed from the ground up without using code. So it's much more uh, rapid. It, it's much easier to change. It's a, there's a much more rapid turnaround time for changes. And I think that kind of flexibility is highly necessary in safety right now, while still maintaining the kind of rigor that's necessary in a safety program. Kevin? Well, thank you, Jake. No, as, as you alluded um, in your answer, we're gonna shift now to talking about some communication challenges. Can I, can I just make one remark on, on the original poll? Um, what was it, the, you know, where, where, we're, where we're like heading in terms of, you know, COVID. Um, yeah, so I, I, you know, like most of us said, we're, we're probably gonna end up in a spot like, you know, slightly pre-pandemic and 
you know, with, with additional restrictions. And I, I agree with that. Um, I think like CDC is still going to have its recommendations. I think, you know, companies are still going to advise, you know, following those recommendations. But I think in terms of like, at least in the United States, I think uh, state mandates are going to start lifting and, and we're already starting to see that. Um, and I think with that, we're going to see a pretty like sharp increase in economic activity and economic growth. And, and obviously this is all like, um, you know, my predictions, but uh, I think with that economic growth and as things start to open, we're going to see a lot of like new jobs and stuff come on the, uh, come on the market. So um, I think one thing that, that we as safety professionals, like, you know, we're, we're very like focused on like COVID right now, but I think like the after one of the aftermaths of, of COVID is going to be some economic growth. And I think there's going to be a lot of new jobs and, you know, our companies that we work for are going to start growing. Um, so I think people should take a look at like their new employee, like onboarding training and stuff like that. Um, and see like, Hey, can like, are you able to handle like, you know, 10 new hires in, in a couple months time? Um, so, you know, that was, that was just one thing I was thinking about. Um, you know, last night I was like going out to, you know, go, going over to a friend's house. I saw like, you know, a lot of like restaurants and stuff were, we're starting to open up. So, you know, I think we're going to start seeing some, some economic activity and, and, you know, from a health and safety person standpoint, it's like, well, you know, maybe that means new hires and, and, you know, how are we going to train those new hires up? So that, that was just one remark I wanted to make on the poll. I was going to say, I want to, David, you've got some really good um, historical evidence from that as well. If you think about the twenties, which was, uh, definitely a party time. And you think about the 60s, both of those, see, unfortunately, you're probably not old enough to remember either. But um, those are both times that the 20s follow Spanish flu. So both of these um, times when society grew exponentially and uh, people went out and started meeting again were followed by particular lockdowns. So you do have some real historical thing. And I think I think, as you're quite agreeing with you there, people are really going to start to see this growth. But we do have to be mindful as well that because there has been this downturn, people are going to be worried about speaking up when there's things that they perhaps want to raise because people may be in a case where they're fearful for their job. So previously, where we've got to a culture now, and especially the work you've been doing, where people do speak up better, they raise hazards, they have safety observations. Now, if you think, well, if I raise this safety observation, am I going to be seen as a troublemaker? You are going to get, and we do need to be really mindful as safety professionals, that we are ready to support these workers in terms of reporting the right information to the right people at the right time so that for, we can still get everyone home safe at the end of the day. Thank all of you. No, um, so much of what you said is, is going to segue into our next topic, and that's communication challenges. Uh, really talking about managing safety processes leads directly to the problem of communication. Um, safety pro professionals communicate in a huge variety of ways, ranging from the tactical, something such as tailgate briefings, to strategic communications with board members and really everything in between. So with that, let's talk about how we're reaching out to and listening to our staff. Um, once again, we're going to get you going with a polling question. And we're going to ask what aspects of communication have been impacted by COVID the most. So this is multiple choice. So we ask you to choose three of these. As we were talking, 
among ourselves about what kind of, of communication we wanted to talk about on this webcast, uh, on this panel. Uh, Keith and David and I were, were looking at the um, the need for real tactical communications. So your morning tailgate meetings, just sitting there and making sure that the people you're sitting there face to face with are, are understand the, the safety hazards in a certain situation or what the, the job entailed. Uh, and then how that rolls up across multiple levels. So it's not one level or the other, it's not tactical or strategic. An accident review can be at the department level. Overall reviews can be uh, you know, at the strategic level because they can affect things like you know, your bottom line, your EMR and so on. So, um, so there's a tremendous amount of variety, I think, in, in the kinds of communications we need to face. Keith, you might have something to say to that too. Absolutely, and I think it was a really good conversation and I know the poll's gone and I just want you to, for our, for our colleagues that um, aren't based out where you guys are in America, obviously a tailgate meeting is a toolbox talk to many people in Europe and in America. It's uh, exactly the same thing, but it was news to me as well. I didn't quite know what a tailgate meeting was, but it is key from that that we are looking at in terms of with COVID, it's making sure it is that right information to the right people at the right time. And we, we need to make sure is that we still maintain that communication despite the fact that COVID is creating, forcing us into different communication channels. So we get going now and into the questions for this section, uh, David, just how did communication change during the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think the cop-out answer is, you know, we all started using Zoom more and, you know, Teams and stuff like that. But um, I, I mean, honestly, those platforms already really existed. Um, I, I think the biggest shift in communication was for, you know, the, the essential workers, the non-remote workers, like how they communicated with, you know, the remote workers and how the, you know, the non-remote workers communicated with non-remote workers. Um, and I think, you know, COVID kind of forced everyone to take take a step back and, you know, obviously we want to like limit our interactions with people. So, you know, if there's a construction job going on or if you're on, you know, construction site, you know, maybe you don't want to be there for every single morning, like tailgate meeting or, you know, something like that. Um, so I think it, it, it kind of was like a test for how, how like strict and disciplined your workers are and like how good your programs were to begin with. You know, if your if your workers were, you know, diligent about doing, you know, tailgate meetings and stuff like that before the pandemic, then, you know, without that health and safety, you know, presence there constantly, um, you know, did they kind of slip a little bit or did they keep doing it? Um, so I think, I think that's one thing. I don't really, I guess it's not, you know, did communication change? I guess that's kind of, kind of an answer to the question, but, um, yeah, so I think it kind of tested your, you know, the company's, you know, I guess, I guess just how disciplined they were. Um, and then, you know, I think uh, obviously like remote workers communicating with remote workers, but, you know, people were, people were already using like these tools to begin with. Now, now we're just like in a different environment with like dogs barking and kids screaming. So I guess, uh, you know. <laughs> working through some of those variables may have, may have been a little different, but um, yeah, yeah. 
I guess I, I think the I think the big thing was uh, you know t- testing out how how disciplined your workers were because you know now now they have like recommendations from CDC and state guidelines so you got to make sure you know they're they're following those as well so I think that's where the I think that's where the challenge and, and changes came into play was those those in person meetings that you couldn't you know you couldn't make remote. Now we turn to Keith. Uh, Keith, talk to us about the importance of feedback loops in your field and, and the importance of listening. Well, I absolutely love this question. I love the response. And I was really interested to see that training was one of the ones that people thought was affected the most. Um, when we're thinking about things in terms of training, a lot of COVID shut down um, sites, shut down offices, shut down classrooms. So you might have had training but it's a bit like riding a bike. They say you never forget to ride a bike, but I can guarantee if you haven't ridden one for 10 years and you try and ride a bike again, you're a bit wobbly to start with. And the same with training is we do need to make sure as part of this training, part of this feedback loop is that there will be people that have been trained just before they stop going to work. And now they might have skills fade and not be, You know, if I train you in something a year ago and then said, right, go and do that, you've got to suddenly remember training you did a year ago without picking it up. So that's where in terms of this active listening, and I'm looking at the question that's come through from uh, Bonner Chul, email is part of communication. I think we're not talking about the specifics. What we're talking about is in communication, how we're making sure that actually we're actively listening to people. And what we're doing is we're making sure that we're listening, taking that feedback and feeding that back into the people we're trying to support. Because if people are actually communicating with you and telling you what you need to know, but you don't actually let them know that you've heard them and you don't let them know that you've responded and actually changed what you're doing, this is where you're going to get disenfranchised staff. This could be, again, why the reason that training is felt, it's not engaging. And this is when you're going to start having issues on site. So what we have to look with, and remember, before COVID, we always did what we thought was the right thing. And if COVID changed that way you communicate, the old saying as it goes, if you've got a hammer, if hammer is the only tool you've got, everything looks like a nail. So if the way you communicated before was face-to-face tailgate briefings, and you've suddenly had to start doing those remotely and you're still doing them the same way, you're perhaps not going to get that same feedback, that same networking with your staff and that same communication to make sure everyone's safe. For Jake, uh, Jake, how important is communication at Fulcrum and what do you do to facilitate it? Sorry, I actually remembered to unmute before speaking. Um, The... uh, I come from a vendor's perspective. Obviously, we're a company that helps safety professionals do what they do. Um, And from from my perspective, uh, communication is really data flowing from one person or group to another. And at Fulcrum, that's the, the kind of communication that we really help facilitate. Like what we're doing right now is communicating and there's information flowing from the speakers to the to the audience and the audience is going to have their chance to ask questions and so on so I, it's really a, a two-way street of data flowing from from uh, from one person to another from one group to another so uh, I think there's an opportunity actually to capture more data than we used to capture when we were face to face more so post covid we saw that people shifted from pen and paper somewhat to 
um, to spreadsheets as a, as a starting point. The data that you might have communicated with each other face-to-face -face using words and, and just captured only in your brains uh, can now be captured to some extent by digitizing that and ensuring that it, it remains captured, that you, you retain it and are able to use it further downstream. And I think it's important for us to recognize the volume of data that we create. Uh, people may not think of themselves as data collectors. You might think of yourself as, as performing an inspection. But when you perform an inspection, you're actually generating data. You're seeing what a uh, what a situation looks like. You're understanding what hazards are in place and you understand what uh, the ramifications of that might be. And all of those are aspects of data uh, that, are, that can be critically important to not only the people in the immediate vicinity, but also to the organization at large. So I think it's really important for, um, for information technology, and I'll talk about this more a little bit in the future too, but I think it's really important for information technology to support the capture of information, and the flow of information across an organization to ensure that it's being used to drive the best outcomes. Um, so, so from my perspective, clear, consistent data capture, uh, correct data flow, and uh, proper aggregation of that data for use in decision making are all key elements of, of ensuring that we're using that, that we're communicating effectively within our organizations. I'd, I'd love to come in on that point that Jake was making there. And I think um, in terms of that feedback loop, it is the thing that often happens within businesses and perhaps has been happening more with COVID where people have been coming disengaged is the fact that it's very important. And I used to have this with unions, that when you were having a union meeting, it was about you said and we did. The we did bit from the actual management was the most important stuff. And even if you went back and said, well, you said this was a problem and we did this and the we did was, well, we did nothing. At least the person who raised the issue and logged that data knows that it has been considered. It has been looked at and they've been given an answer. Even if you don't do anything, it's still important to have that feedback loop to make sure that when you capture data, the, the, the data, the person that's raised the data, I hope I've got that correct. I was going to say the data raiser, the initiator, that's correct, Jake, isn't it? The initiator must get that feedback to say, do you know what? We've listened to you. We heard what you said and we have done something or we have at least considered it and given you an answer. Because if you don't, when people stop being, if people don't believe they're being listened to, they stop raising issues. When they stop raising issues, they don't become engaged. When they're not engaged, that's when accidents happen because people aren't able to have that communication. So they stop caring and people that don't care aren't as engaged and therefore not as committed to the safety of everyone they work with as in the family. Super. You, you can't have a good relationship without good two-way communication and a safety culture is a lot of communication among a lot of people to create the environment they need and the outcomes that, uh, that they need from it. I think you're 100% right, Keith. All right, well, well thank you. We're gonna go a little more in depth into, into data in this third section, leveraging data, proactive, not reactive. Um, as you've noted, a significant part of communication is what we might think of technically as data flowing. So improving our ability to be data-driven has to be an important part of our future efforts. Um, with that, as we get into this, another poll question, 
we're asking, what's your top challenge in taking a more data-driven approach to safety? We've got five, five options and please, uh, please tell us what you think. When we were talking about this one as well to, to figure out what would be interesting for us all, uh, the, the, there's always uh, different business challenges related to uh, date being, becoming data-driven. And the question is, do we even know what we want from that? Is the problem with communicating what we're getting out of it? Is it that people uh, you know, have not invented here syndrome or they're kind of protectionist with their data? So all of those are represented here. And, um, and uh, you may actually see more than one, but we're looking at the top challenge for this particular case. And that's really interesting. The question is a strategic one, understanding the means by which you'll use the data and how it'll be communicated up and down. Although that's 38%, uh, the others are heavy showing as well. It's nice to see that the protectionist attitudes at least are a little bit on the low end. Uh, Keith, I think that was one thing that you had uh, mentioned. I'm, I'm absolutely loving that answer there. And I'm going to wait for Kevin to bring me in, but that's definitely something I've you know, I've, I've got uh, some points on that I really want to raise, but I'll wait for David to bring me in on that one. Sorry, Kevin. No problem. I'll, uh, I'll bring David in, though, but before you, um, David, this one is for you. Just how important are, are these kinds of issues to your Safety Nights community and how are they addressing them? Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, when you're talking about data, it's, it's a pretty, you know, you, you could kind of interpret it like pretty high level, like you have like like big data, you know, that's like your social media data and like privacy data and, st and stuff like that. Um, and, and then, you know, you have your more like analytic data that you collect it, you know, like your health and safety like person um, position. So, you know, I think, uh, I think a pretty, you know, pretty like, maybe not like trendy, trendy is probably not the right word, but a pretty like popular d discussion these days is like, you know, leading versus lagging indicators and, um, you know, like are like lagging indicators, like even representative of your like safety program or, you know, should we be switching to leading indicators? Um, so, you know, as far as like, like what people are talking about on safety nights, that's probably one of the, you know, in terms of data, at least, um, that's probably one of the more popular discussions. And I would say that's true for like all of social media, like, you know, pe people are always, you know, arguing about, you know, leading versus lagging indicators. So, you know, lagging indicator being like a um, total, total reportable incident rate or a, you know, dart rate where, you know, something happens. And then, you know, at the end of the year, you, you run your spreadsheet and you can track your data that way, you know, that being a lagging indicator, because the injuries already happened um, versus like lead, leading indicators, which is like, like your near misses and then like, you know, your safety observations, and then you get into like behavior-based safety. Um, so I think that's, that's a pretty big discussion in the, you know, in the safety community is like, all right, you know, like, should we even bother with like lagging indicators or switch to leading indicators? And, uh, I, I think it really depends on like, you know, it, it's, it's more like case by case, like, you know, me personally, I, I, I don't think the lagging indicators are like totally useless. Um, they're generally pretty easy to calculate. They're 
like the industry standard so you can kind of have a comparison but um you know again you make the argument like like they're lagging like you can't like predict you know use it to like predict stuff and then you know your leading indicators are are more definitely more progressive and there's a lot of like new studies out there and the studies get kind of complex i, I read one and I think they were like going like the partition function or something like that. And that's when I zoned out. But um, I think, uh, you know, I, th I think we're starting to see more like leading indicator models, you know, hitting the, you know, hitting the mainstream. So, um, but I, I think it really depends on, on, on your, on your company. And, you know, I think generally people kind of like fall somewhere on the spectrum between like, you know, how, how, how much you want to rely on your lagging indicators versus how much you want to rely on your leading indicators. Um, and it's just, you know, whatever works best, whatever you think works best for your company um, is, is generally the consensus because, um, you know, it, it's going to be different. So, um, you know, in terms of data management, I think, uh, you know, I think it's pretty, pretty subjective and, and uh, case by case basis. So, yeah. That's that's what I see on, on the Safety Nights community on LinkedIn and stuff like that. People are always doing leading versus lagging indicators, so it's a cool it's a cool thing to think about. Um, but yeah, we'll see we'll see where it goes. Well, now we will go to Keith. Uh, Keith, what's what's the best way to start collecting the data needed to become more data driven? And should people err uh, well, on the side of collecting too little data or too much? Oh, I'm I'm gonna. I've this is oh you've set the world on light with that last session david i've just got to say so i've got a really interesting thing to bring in here so david one of the things you said completely agree with it's not about the data it's what we do with it that absolutely fully support david on that but believe it or not david if you'd been with me in in germany about two years ago and you'd stood up in front of them and said near misses are a leading indicator you'd have seen most of the audience, you'd have seen their heads pop because it's brilliant. It's, it's very much, and I had this, so I had someone stand up on stage and say near misses are leading indicators. And Germans are very process different. I don't want to stereotype an entire um, country because we could end up, you know, we could get into all sorts of trouble. But the Germans, you see, where they're process driven and they're very much about quality, they view near misses as a lagging indicator because something happened. I, I can whereas, see that. I can see absolutely. that. Absolutely. Whereas, whereas when you talk to the French, and again, see, I'm just getting into all sorts of trouble here immediately. But when you We're talk to them... We're going to get letters about this, Keith. We're going to get letters. Absolutely. It's fine. I'm not... I'm, I'm in the UK. It's my fault. You can blame me. I'm not one of your countrymen. But um, one of the things that they said, they're going, but it's a near miss. It's leading. And when you say why, they go, but we didn't kill anyone. So therefore, it's a good thing. It's brilliant. And I think bringing back to David's point, which is fantastic, is it doesn't matter whether it's leading or lagging. We don't really care. What we care about is, did you do something about it? And did you fix it? And this is where it's going to come to my next point. The actual question you asked me, Kevin, I'm sorry, I've got to get props out. I've got to move. This is very excitable. But what we're going to talk about here is, look, so many people, look at that. Can you see that graph? That is how a lot of people, so Jake, they'll get hold of your application and they'll go, this is amazing. Can you see how much we can record? We can record all this data. I can work out where they're standing, what they're looking at, what color their shoes are. I can make them tell me what the weather is, all of that. And suddenly their data's gone from this, where they've had a couple of nice leading and ladding indicators. They've gone crazy. They've gone there. 
And what you're saying, though, Kevin, is I want people to think like that. When you're trying to work out what the right data is, and let me zoom in on that for you there, okay? Measure what you need to focus on as a business right now to improve success and keep everyone safe. And that's what I say to people. Measure one thing. Do it well. Praise people. Reward people. Feedback. Get that loop of data that feedback loop to your staff that everything what we've planned to do is good and then move on because we know the people at the front line if you start throwing data at them they're going but i've been doing my job really well already i've been doing my job well i do this well i do that and all of a sudden you've made my job harder because i've now got to log all this extra data so i really do think you know picking up on the point there in terms of communication you know is it data for data's sake are we collecting it because we suddenly can and is it something we need to measure and does it help the board make better decisions about improving the company and finding efficiencies and ultimately is you know is it there does it help us with our deming cycle in terms of plan do check and act so I would, I'd say to everyone, take David's point there, which is brilliant, which is about, you know, don't worry about leading and lagging, just worry about doing the right thing with it. Use Jake's, you know, from that point of view of getting the right data to the right people at the right time. But remember, let's pick up on that piece of data we need to, to make sure it's the right data to do the right thing and to help us get everyone home safe. Sorry, I got a little excitable there. Oh, quite all right. No, you're, I liked it. You're right. <laughs> um, Jake, we now ask you just how do technology providers improve communication related to safety? Well, there's a, a ton related to what Keith just talked about. Uh, and and uh, like, there's actually so much to talk about, but uh, let's focus on a couple of key things. Um, we know that technology is supposed to be there to facilitate safety programs to make it easier for us to understand what's going on, to make it easier for us to do the right thing, to make it easier for people to get home safe at night. Um, and there are a lot of different aspects to that that, that should be um, uh, brought to bear in a, in a safety program. Uh, for us, we, we start with the cloud and cloud is a technology buzzword, but uh, it, it really is relatively simple. Like when you log onto Facebook, you're using the cloud. You're not installing software on your computer. You're just using something that's there. And when you make an update to Facebook, everybody who's connected to Facebook can see it, right? So it's really all about, uh, you know, somewhere your data is being communicated correctly uh, from a safety perspective to relate it back to safety. Uh, you know, when an inspection is completed, there's no reason that everybody can't see what's going on there as well. Everybody should be able to see that inspections are taking place uh, to a point that, that uh, Keith made a moment ago. Uh, uh, you know, if, actually he made a, a very important point earlier on about what we do when people are concerned about noting that there's a hazard. I don't wanna make waves, I don't wanna be a troublemaker. Well, if somebody is able to snap a picture of a hazard and that hazard information immediately gets communicated to people who can remediate that hazard, then they're not seen as a troublemaker. They're actually able to see that there is a, uh, a result. You get the, the communication feedback loop that you're looking for uh, and you get a, a safer environment. So uh, being able to, to use the cloud in that way to be able to capture information and immediately communicate it out to all of the stakeholders who are involved in it uh, really helps create a safety culture. Um, there are other more kind of prosaic things to talk about there, such as reports. 
I mean, these are, if you have a PDF report, that's durable communication that goes out to supervisors, other stakeholders, even clients. I would guess that many people on this call today are people who are providing consulting services to clients. And those clients need information about the safety process that you are applying to their environments. Um, one thing that we're very focused on is location intelligence, being able to put information on a map so that you can see uh, location-related aspects of your organization's situation. Uh, it is amazing sometimes how often you can pick up some interesting uh, trends just based on where things are located. Oh, well, the, the Northeast team actually seems to have uh, more hazards being reported than the Southeast team. I wonder why that is. And by the way, again, data as communication, the Northeast team also sees a, uh, has better results, is, is seeing better results. They have fewer safety incidents. So more hazards being reported, but fewer safety incidents. That's important information to capture and understand. And the technology, uh, the, the, the capture technology, the ability to see that on a, on a screen, being able to see it on a map will help communicate the fact that the higher number of hazards is actually a good thing because it means people are reporting the hazards, whereas the lower number of hazards coupled with a higher number of incident rates is actually a bad thing because people aren't reporting hazards that are there and then people are getting injured on the job. So, uh, so that's another aspect of, of technology that needs to be uh, thought about is, is, is mapping and geography. And then finally, I want to briefly mention integration. All of this sounds like uh, technology jargon if you're not used to it, but, but integration is, is just a form of communication. It's making sure that you're able to push the information out to the people who need it. Maybe they're doing analysis. You need to be able to push th things out to their analytical tools. Maybe you're doing uh, some kind of uh, a process, a safety process, and there needs to be equipment on site. So you're pushing information out to the uh, asset management software that's able to then uh, ensure that the right equipment is in place at the right time. Uh, so those are some of the some of the technology factors that we think about: cloud reporting, uh, mapping and location intelligence, uh, integration. And there's a ton more that I could talk about, but I think that might get pretty boring. So I I don't want to do that. Um, I think we're getting ready, Kevin. If I'm not mistaken, for audience questions, is that correct? Yes, that's that's correct. Um, so. I just want to take about 15 seconds to mention, uh, now that I've talked a little bit about the technology of Fulcrum, I want to back up slightly and just mention that um, Fulcrum is really about providing no-code intelligent automation for the mobile workforce. Safety people typically being very mobile, uh, we, we, we see that as a strong need in the safety community. Uh, we want to be able to maximize that field team performance and agility without writing code. We wanna make sure that you're able to ensure your process rigor and compliance. Uh, we wanna make sure that you're harnessing the value of location and apps for your mobile teams and your safety teams. We wanna connect the field with the back office. If you have safety people out in the field or if you have maybe non-safety people out in the field who also have the ability to, to, to identify hazards, we wanna be able to connect that with the back office and make sure that we're tracking all of the information that needs to be tracked. And the bottom line is we wanna be able to digitally transform safety and quality and asset inspections for uh, your mobile workforce. So uh, this has been a word from your sponsor. I'll get out of the way now and let's uh, let's uh, start moving on to those questions. Kevin, thank you. Certainly no, and we, we thank, thank the three of you. Great job, Keith, David, and Jake. We, we thank you for your insights and expertise and just a truly enlightening discussion. Um, before we do start the Q&A, just wanna remind everyone of the evaluation survey that we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this presentation 
Your input is important because it'll help us improve future webcasts, and we appreciate you taking the extra time to offer feedback. I know some have been rolling in, but just a reminder, if you want to ask a question, simply click that Q&A button at the bottom of the screen, type your question, and click the send button. Uh, with that, we will get to some questions. First one is for Keith. Uh, Keith, when, when people are satisfied with the old ways of doing things, just what are some of the best ways to get them out of their comfort zone and to start improving their use of data and technology? You're on I, mute, Keith. You're on mute. One of us had to that. Uh, one of us had to do it, didn't we? Absolutely. We, um, we made it. We made it more than three quarters of the way. All right. <laughs> I've got to say as well. I think we all need to wave because actually my mum's in the audience as well. So can we all just wave to my mum, please? See, just as so she proves, just so I can prove I'm here to her. Anyway, but yeah. So looking at that data in terms of uh, getting that, you are going to go through your change curve. Um, you are going to have that challenge of taking people. As we talked about when I was talking about the different data, how you collect data, you've got to be careful enough in terms of not scaring people into what you're going to do with this. You've got to make people understand that this data has been collected for the right reasons to make them safer and to make the business more efficient. An example I might give is when collecting hazards for the first time or safety moments or whatever you want to call them in your business for the first time. As soon as you introduce a system and you say to people, I need you to collect hazards, what happens is, is they will report anything because they're thinking it's just another job. So you'll get hazard reporting like it's raining. The picture was upside down. I didn't like the sandwich in the canteen. And you've got to be really careful not to chastise people at that point of the hazard collection process. Because actually what they've done is by just letting them submit those spurious hazards, you're kind of tricking them into moving into that habit of reporting hazards, a bit like wearing a seatbelt or driving at speed. Once you reinforce that behavior, so if they report 14 daft hazards and you let them, they've got into the habit of using the app. They've got into the habit of reporting hazards. So let them get into the habit of telling you about stuff, respond to it professionally, but then start coaching them in what a good hazard looks like. What is the data you want? If you punish them too early on or don't co coach them too early on, shall we say, for what they're reporting, they'll stop reporting because they haven't got into that habit of telling you people. So I'm always very mindful of people. When you start putting that change in, just let people go and start encouraging them to tell you stuff. Tell them what's happening. Give them feedback. Don't, you know, essential thing I've coached a lot of directors with. Directors have got a habit of telling off people that bring them information. So an accident might happen. You know about it. You go in to see the director and say, do you know this has happened? And the director goes, can't you see I'm busy? I knew about that already. Why are you wasting my time? The individual that told you didn't know he was wasting your time. He thought he was being helpful. So it's coaching directors to turn around and say, just say thank you to them because what will happen is one day they'll come and tell you something you didn't know. And if you punish them now for about things that they're trying to be helpful, they stop being helpful and your knowledge base gets smaller. So it is about encouraging people to tell you stuff, coaching them and saying thank you for them telling you stuff. Then let's help them understand what is useful. What do you need to know before you punish them for speaking up? Because if you punish them for speaking up, 
nothing happens. So we've got to be mindful. When we start collecting that new data, let's open our arms and let's welcome it like we've never seen it before. And you'll start getting those behaviors. You'll start getting good data, which means you can bring efficiencies into your business and use that data to leverage to do the right things. Thank you. Um, got a question now not for David. What would your advice be to someone just starting out with apps for safety? Um, I mean, I guess as far as like, you know, building apps or, you know, using apps, um, I, I guess, I guess my, it doesn't, you know, my answer doesn't matter, but, um, you know, I would say safety, safety is kind of like a team sport, um, which is, I guess kind of counterintuitive, counterintuitive because, you know, depending on the size of your company, you know, if it's like a 50, you know, 40, 50 person company, like you might have like one safety person. Um, so, you know, it can definitely feel lonely at times, but, um, you know, you, you need to, you know, figure out how to build, build, build your team because, you know, when you want to use like a new app or roll out or like a new program, um, you definitely need to get like buy-in from like, you know, your managers, your coworkers, um, and, you know, even if they're not technically like safety, um, obviously like, you know, safety is everyone's job. So, um, you know, definitely, definitely try and build your team. Um, and even building safety nights, like, you know, I started building it like all on my own and, and probably within like a month of launching, I was like, wow, I need, I need some help with this. So, you know, we kind of recruited some people to help build it. And, um, I mean, I think that's just indicative of, of, uh, um, you know, safety, safety in general, if you're trying to roll out a new program at work, you know, get a supervisor, get some workers. And, you know, if you're trying to use a new app, you got to, you know, train people up and get people on board. So, um, I guess that, that would be my advice is, is, is try and build a team, uh, try and build a team and, and it becomes a lot easier to implement the things that you want to implement. Thank you. Uh, this one is to Jake and asked, how do I start getting actionable insights out of the data that our team is collecting? I think that the, um, we saw in the polling question that there's, uh, we have some issues to face with respect to understanding what we need to collect and, and Keith's uh, interesting diagrams uh, related to that. Um, I think we need to understand how we're going to communicate what we learn and uh, how all of that information rolls up to uh, higher levels. Um, so uh, for, I think there's, there's a need for us to be uh, thoughtful, a little bit upfront about the kind of information we're collecting, and then understand that that as we start to communicate it and as we start to roll it up, uh, it becomes important for us to remain flexible about the kinds of things that we do collect. Um, and as we collect that data, uh, we need to be uh, well. Pardon me. We need to be. We need to start with a process, right? We're starting with you know we're collecting points A, B, and C, and then we need to add in points D and E and F because those points D and F matter to the people who are coming to understand information from um, uh, from the data that we're collecting. So I think it's uh, I think it's important to to kind of just have a good, solid, thoughtful process about how you are. Uh, getting your information, the kinds of information that you want to collect, and where you go from there as you communicate that information and get feedback from people about what that information means to them. Um, so that, that's kind of a, a high-level perspective 
uh, on that. And I think it's important, especially with COVID in the sense that um, we, we, as we've seen with COVID, the pencil and paper approach to safety has been more difficult and we've had to move over to spreadsheets. Obviously at Fulcrum, we would move uh, people into, the, into Fulcrum apps. And then we have to be ready to adjust those spreadsheets or Fulcrum apps or whatever it is we're using to track to catch more of that information and start communicating that information more effectively. Thank you. Um, moving on to our next question, and it's asking, do you feel that employers will face lawsuits due to employees getting COVID-19 at work over the coming months? I think Keith indicated he'd like to begin with that answer. I, I, I just wanted to give this because there's going to be two very different answers depending on where you where in the world you are. So within the UK and Europe, there's very been very specific guidance issued around what is classed as contracting COVID at work. So there has been from our enforcement bodies in the UK and Europe, they've made very clear rules. So, for example, if you contracted it in a lab to dropping a vial of COVID uh, sample, then that would be an accident at work and therefore there is a responsibility and you would have a claim against the employer for you contracting COVID. So that's really from a, a, a European and UK point of view. So I just really, I'm quite interested as well from probably from yourself, David, or someone else want to pick that up from the, the different uh, litigation model that you have in America to the UK. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely no like legal expert um, what was the question again? Do you feel employers will face lawsuits due to employees getting COVID-19 at work in the coming months? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure. I'm, you know, I'm sure there's always going to be lawsuits. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's probably some, like, developing lawyer industry of, like, you know, corporate COVID defense attorneys and whatnot. But, yeah, yeah, no, it's still, yeah, I don't know. I don't really have a good answer for that. But maybe someone with a more legal background does. I don't have a legal background, but if you look at where we are with um, currently with any kinds of standards coming from OSHA for uh, Keith and anybody else out of the US, that's the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Um, the, we've always had to capture documentation. We've always been able to uh, had a requirement to demonstrate that we're following the required, you know, the regulations that are in place. So uh, here again is a situation where capturing data, making sure that we retain that data, making sure that we're able to fully document what we've done, all of that is, uh, is, is still comes into play with COVID. So I don't see that, I'm not a lawyer, but I don't see that as a different issue than the other kinds of things we've had to do with respect to you know, ladder safety and uh, you know, falls off of platforms. If you still have to document everything that you've done and ensure that, um, that, the, that information is available to the people who need to investigate it to make sure that you've done the right things in order to cover yourself legally. All right, um, well, next question is asking, is it possible to have some tools related, uh, a tools related COVID-19 training video or, or a PowerPoint to sort of asking specifically about tools related to COVID-19? Yeah, I think I indicated I'll, I'll answer this one. Um, yeah, I mean, there's tons out there. There's, there's, you know, probably like hundreds of different platforms available that can, um, you know, meet your your COVID, uh, you know, your COVID training and awareness, um, you know, employer needs. Um, 
was I was going to say actually, David. Um, I do. I am aware that OSHA have released uh, training guidance, which you can download. There's also the International Safety and Security Association, which is the global body for safety, security association, have a recognised accredited course on um, COVID in the workplace, as do the Institute of Occupation and Safety and Health. Um, yeah, that's a those, good point. It's, you know, the, def- the agency is definitely, you know, definitely yeah. have a pretty good repository of these types of I, trainings. And, and also the um, ISO, I'm talking from a British Standard Institute as well. But I, if I was guiding you anywhere, I'd probably guide you to the Institute of Occupational Safety and Health in the UK from a point of view that they've produced COVID guidance for um, employers that also covers the rest of the world as well. And it's just good guidance. It's based on the World Health Organization guidance on what are the right things to be doing as an employer. I think we've got time, guys, for one more, um, excuse me, one more question. Can technology help to drive uh, leading indicators? Or to drive the use of leading indicators, that is. Uh, I, uh, speaking uh, for myself, uh, I think Keith, or David, you're the one who brought up leading indicators, but um, technology is definitely useful for capturing leading indicators because you need to have some points to measure um, and only after that point has been measured do you know that it was a uh, that it, that it could lead to something to, to a significant problem. So uh, you know, for example, uh, a a uh, if you have a leading indicator related to uh, ladder safety, you're seeing that there is a uh, just making stuff up here. There's a a, a significant accumulation of rust, and as, a, as you see rust accumulate, you're starting to see more people slipping then uh, you can start to make that correlation. So you need to be able to have data in order to be able to define what is a leading indicator. You will identify what those leading indicators are over time. And once you've identified them, you need to be able to capture that data in order to then say, okay, well, I'm seeing an uptick in this particular problem, rust on a ladder, so I might expect more ladder slips. Therefore, I need to make sure that I'm taking care of that problem. So uh, absolutely, technology, specifically data capture and analysis is really critical to managing uh, leading indicators. Uh, Just really to come off Jake's point there, the, the answer is yes, and the reason technology can help is because it can make it easier to get the right information into that system to do the analysis. So you're getting the technology to do the heavy lifting, whereas previously you'd have to fill a form in. You might have to find a pen out the truck. You might then have to find the form. You might then have to fill that in. You've then got to post it. If you're spread over a large area, how do you get it there? With technology, you fill it in on the app. It goes straight into the cloud. It's live data they can look at immediately. And also you can have data validation done on the device, which means that you can make sure people are reporting stuff into the right categories so that it makes it easier to analyze almost instantly at the head office or with the supervisor. A supervisor can be sitting 50 miles away. He can look at the data from a thousand jobs that morning and he can see patterns emerging as we speak without technology you might have been waiting a week to have that kind of understanding feel or knowledge about the data being captured in the field that morning okay well uh, again guys thank you um, unfortunately we, we've run out of time so 
I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded on to our speakers. Once again, we do hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey and provide your feedback. Um, with that, we end today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Keith Hole, David Janicki, Jake Freevald, everyone at Fulcrum, and all of you who listened in. Thanks and have a great day.